Welcome to Genesis. My name is Michael, and uh, we are uh, picking back up a series that we started. Uh, we took a break for Easter, uh, and this morning we're going to dive back into Romans uh, chapter 9. Uh, I think, at least for me, one of the things that I've seen, one of the things that I've learned uh, as I've been walking through uh, Paul's letter uh, to the church in Rome is it's a really, really, really challenging letter, uh, and it often... Um, challenges our uh, preconceived notions of who God is. It challenges our preconceived ideas of how God should operate. Uh, and one of the things that Romans has done is it really is forcing us uh, to really ask some tough questions uh, about who God is and how we relate with God and some of the decisions and choices that God has made uh, throughout history. Uh, and this morning, I just want to jump right in. And we're going to cover specifically uh, four questions. Um, and before I let you know what the questions are, uh, this is going to be a, a really, I'm just putting this out here for you now, a really challenging text that we are walking through. Uh, if you've been a Christian for years and years, you might be very familiar with the text that we're going to be talking about. Uh, but my prayer as we go through this is that it would really challenge you in how you actually understand who God is. Uh, if you're not a Christian and you're just trying to figure out what you think about God so that you could relate with God. Uh, this is going to, some of these questions and specifically the answers to these questions will really challenge you of what do you really believe about God? Uh, so here are the four questions we're going to talk about. Number one is simply this. I shouldn't say simply because it's a challenging question. Does God allow and or ordain evil in the world in order to accomplish his redemptive purposes? I guarantee this is a question that all of us at some point in time have wrestled with, and if you haven't, you're going to wrestle with it today, and it's a really important question of how do we understand evil in the world we live in? Does God allow it, ordain evil, in order to accomplish some greater good? Uh, question number two we're going to look at is this. Does God harden people's hearts so that they will reject him and or do evil? Does God actually put evil in people so that they will either doubt him or not have faith in him or just do evil things. Uh, question number three, how can God hold someone accountable for having a hardened heart that was hardened by God? Why does he still blame us if there's nothing we can do to resist him? If God is ultimately in control of my heart and can harden it or soften it, why would God... How is it right for God to hold me accountable for something that he did in me? I can't resist God, so why does he blame me? And then the fourth question is this. If God knew that humanity would sin, if he had knowledge that there would be what we call the fall, then why did he create those he knew he would not save? Did he create in order to destroy? If God, it's... it's it's not the age-old question, but it's a really challenging question. If God knew that we would rebel and sin, why on earth did God create us in the first place? Um, so with that, let's pray, because <laughs> we will need it. Father God, I pray that uh, you would bless. Uh, these are some challenging questions. Uh, all of these questions, God, are arising uh, from Romans chapter 9. So uh, Father God, I pray that you would just open up our hearts, open up our minds uh, to receive from you uh, not only answers to these very challenging questions, uh, but God, open our minds and our hearts just to understand you. 
so that we could walk with you and relate with you and have a healthy, growing relationship with you. Uh, So, Father God, I pray that uh, even as we go through this, that there would be no confusion. Uh, God, I know that uh, uh, questions are good, but God, I pray that these questions that we're asking today would actually lead us to love you, Uh, that these questions, God, these answers would lead us to worship you and live our lives for you, uh, not apart from you. Uh, So, God, would you just please do a good thing? Give us great wisdom as we walk through uh, this text today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, a few weeks ago, we looked at uh, a message called Chosen, and uh, that was in the first half of Romans chapter 9, where Paul introduced uh, a doctrine called election. Uh, Some of you may have heard of this doctrine. Uh, It's otherwise known as predestination. Uh, I'd encourage you, if you were not here, go back and listen to that message, because we took a good hour to really explain and walk through what predestination means, what this doctrine of election means. Uh, really says. And at the heart of it, the heart of the doctrine of election, it just says that God made a choice. In eternity past, uh, God made a choice of those that would come to a saving relationship with him. Uh, And his choice was not based upon, you know, uh, our performance, if we would be good or bad or righteous or evil. Uh, God's choice of those who would come to salvation was based solely on just his goodness, his righteousness, his holiness, and just his sovereign will. Uh, Now, that's a very quick summary of what the doctrine of election says, and God made a choice. And so one of the things that, that obviously a question that stems from this God making a choice is, how is that fair? How is it fair that God could make a choice that had nothing to do with us? meaning it wasn't based on my performance. So how is that fair that God would make a choice and choose some, but not choose others? And this is what Paul said in Romans 9, 14, because it's the same question that people would, were asking then as we would ask now. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? And Paul's response, and unjust is the same, uh, we can understand it. How is that fair? God is not just in doing something like this. And Paul's response was just simply, uh, not at all. Now, the question of uh, Paul's response to the question of fairness, uh, he goes on in verse 15 and says, let's talk. This is not a question of fairness, but Paul says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God's making a choice. I will be merciful to some, but I will not be merciful to all. So now this raises another question. Uh, is God obligated to be merciful to everyone? Is there something within God that he is obligated to be merciful to everyone? Now, that question, if you answer yes, that God is obligated to be merciful to his creation, if he's obligated, it's no longer mercy. It's no longer grace. If it's an obligation on God's part that he has to do this, he's having to do this for some reason, it's no longer based on just grace. It's no longer based on mercy. And what we looked at a few weeks back is uh, God is obligated because he's God uh, to give divine justice. Everyone who has ever lived past, present, will live future, everyone will get justice. There is not one person who will escape the justice of God, God's divine justice, his righteous justice. But what election says is, Everyone gets justice, but 
not everyone gets mercy. Now, I'm not sitting up here acting as if this is an easy doctrine to grasp or an easy thing to understand. I want to just present, this is what Paul is presenting in Romans, is that God made a choice. Now, I've already raised this question, but is this choice based on my performance? And Paul answers that question in Romans 9.16, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. All of this is dependent on the mercy of God. So that's what the doctrine of election, uh, a, a very short summary, God makes a choice, some get mercy, but everybody gets divine justice. Now, it leads us to uh, the text we're walking through today, and very specifically, Paul wants to give an example of the doctrine of election. And so he calls to mind uh, uh, a man named Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh, you might think of like the Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston and um, I forget the guy's name who played Pharaoh, but even mentioning Pharaoh's name, even mentioning his name would send chills up a Jewish person's spine because of what the Pharaoh of Egypt did to the people of Israel. I want to go backwards a little bit and actually look at Genesis 15. Uh, Genesis 15, hundreds of years before uh, the people were ever um, uh, forced into slavery, ever forced and mistreated by Pharaoh, God said to Abraham, this will happen to the people of Israel. This was no shock. This was no surprise. God told Abraham, one day your people will be mistreated. And he says this, then the Lord said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. Okay, that's a four with two zeros, 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. God is foretelling Abraham that something horrific, something tragic is going to happen to the Jewish nation, to the people of Israel. But God in, reveals the plan, but he also reveals the promise that he will have victory over those who enslaved Israel, and Israel will come out with great possessions. So not to be missed just in these two very short verses, but the people of God suffered for four hundred years. Now, let me ask you the question, if after suffering for just one week, just one week, and you name your suffering, whatever it might be, what is your frame of mind after just one bad week? How often our frame of mind is, God, you have abandoned me. Like, God, where are you? When are you going to relieve me? It's been seven days of just misery. God, when are you going to take down the people, the individuals that are oppressing me? God, when are you going to intervene on my behalf? That's typically our response after just seven days of suffering. I can't even fathom what the people of Israel would have been thinking for 400 years, generation after generation after generation, enslavement, mistreatment, enslavement, mistreatment. For 400 years. I would have to guess that at some level, each generation would ask this question, how could our God allow such an evil person to be in power over us? This is the question of, we ask, 
How could God allow evil people who are doing evil things to have so much sway or power or influence where people are dying, people are being mistreated, people are being abused? This was the story of Israel, 400 years of this. Now, if you're the people of God, it's confusing message. God, we're your people. You've chosen us, you've called us, but yet we're constantly living in suffering. At some level, you're asking the question, is God really good or is God just completely abandoned us? Now, Romans 9 verse 17 says this, for the scriptures say, says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. If you are the Jewish nation and you just realized, wait a minute, did Paul just say that God raised up Pharaoh to have this position of power and influence where he used that power and influence to mistreat and enslave? Did Paul just say that God was the one who raised Pharaoh up to that position? Now, if you're them, I mean, imagine if it was you. After seven days, you realized, you know, that person who is oppressing you, the person who is causing you great conflict or great pain, actually, that, that's me. That, that's, I'm involved in that. Not only am I allowing that to happen, I've actually raised that person up in your life, and that person is causing great torment, and I raised that person up. Now, if, that, if that's you, what are you thinking now of God? I, I thought God was good. I thought God was loving. But God is the one who actually raised Pharaoh up, and it's Pharaoh who's causing all this evil. Now, it's, Paul outlines um, uh, two things here. He says there's a reason that God raised up Pharaoh, and the first reason is the power, that God's power might be displayed. God wanted to demonstrate just how powerful he was. It's not ironic that the most powerful man on the planet at this time is Pharaoh. There's no one who has more power or control or authority in the known world at this point in time in history than Pharaoh. So God's going to raise up the most powerful man as a demonstration of actually who is the most powerful and has the most power. Number two, it says that God's name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. So not as only a demonstration of how powerful God is, but it's not ironic that God would choose the most powerful leader who's leading the most powerful nation so that God's name would actually be the name that would go out throughout the entire world. If you want your name to go out through the entire world, you pick the most powerful leader of the most powerful nation and his name would be proclaimed as powerful and would spread very quickly throughout the nations. Now, the first question that I've, I raised earlier is, does God allow and or ordain evil in the world in order to accomplish his purpose? Yes. Now, some of you might hear that yes and be like, wow, if God really is the one who allows or ordains evil in the world, then I've got a serious problem with God. I, am, I want to be very cautious as I move forward. I'm not saying that God is the author of evil. I'm not saying that God orchestrates evil. Uh, I'm not saying that God even creates evil. God is completely holy. It is not even possible 
uh, for God to sin, nonetheless have an evil thought. But I am saying what Paul is saying is God raised Pharaoh up as a demonstration that God would be seen as all-powerful and that the name of God would be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. So the answer to the question, does God allow or ordain evil in the world to accomplish his purpose, is yes. This is a really hard one to grasp, especially when we consider how much evil is happening in the world right now. And there is a lot of it that places like Fox News and CNN and whatever other blogs or papers you read don't even report. There is an obscene amount of evil that is taking place in the world right now. One of the things that when I say yes, that God has ordained or is allowing evil, I have to concede two things, at least about myself, and I think you would have to concede two things about yourself as well. And number one is our vision is very limited. I cannot see the whole picture. I cannot see what God sees. All the people of Israel could see is Pharaoh and his oppression, but they could not see what God was doing in the midst of all of that. We do not have total vision. I know we think we have an idea of what the big picture is, but our vision is very small. And then secondly, our perspective is very limited. I can only understand what's happening to me and get confused at everything else. So not only is my vision limited as to what God is doing, my perception or what I'm able to even comprehend or understand is limited. Now, Paul doesn't paint the whole story here. He simply makes clear it was God who raised up Pharaoh for a very specific purpose so that the world would see, especially the people of Israel would see, they were completely powerless who the most powerful one was, who the most famous one, whose name would be proclaimed. And it wouldn't be Pharaoh, it would be the name of God. Um, now, this question here of does God allow or ordain evil uh, to happen to accomplish? Now, I need to be clear, it's not just random where God's like, yeah, Pharaoh, go ahead and do your thing. I'll clean up your mess. You know, whatever, you pick your, your horrific dictator, yeah, don't worry about it. You do your thing, and when you're done, I'll, I'll take over. God raised him up for a very specific purpose, and the purpose is that of redemption. The purpose is that God can use something that is evil, something that is absolutely horrific for a redemptive purpose. Now, the question we wrestle with is, can I really trust that God is using even the evil that happens in our world for a redemptive purpose? And I can say with 100% confidence, I can trust God that he can do that. Do you know why? Because of the cross of Christ. The most evil thing that ever happened on this planet or will ever happen on this planet is when God sent his son uh, to die on a cross. And we took his son, ignored him, did not worship him or honor him or revere him, but we mocked him, denied him, abused him, flogged him, and then put him on a cross. What the world intended for evil, the most evil thing to happen uh, was to Jesus Christ. God took that evil and reversed it for his redemptive purposes. So I can look at the face of evil and say, that is horrific, it is awful, but I'm trusting that God is using that somehow, some way for a redemptive purpose. I don't have all of the answers because my limited, my vision is limited, my understanding 
is small, but I know that God is using all things to accomplish a redemptive purpose um, to take place. And I see that with Jesus. Can you imagine if the evil that did not, if it didn't happen to Jesus, we would not have the story of the cross. God took evil and used it for good. Now, what does this have to do? What does Pharaoh have to do with the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination? Okay, he's using Pharaoh as an example here. He says in verse 18, therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Election's about a choice. It's that simple. God will have mercy on some, but he won't have mercy on all. Now, this will get difficult here because Pharaoh is a prime example of election, but now Paul introduces that there's not only some who will receive mercy, but there's some whom God will actually harden their heart. Some get mercy, but Paul says that there will be some that God actually hardens their heart. So the second question is this, does God harden people's heart so that they will reject him and or do evil? This is a really important question uh, because how you answer this question, whether if God is really stirring evil in people will really impact how you think about God, therefore how you relate with God. So in understanding how to even answer this question, does God harden people's hearts so that they will reject him and or do evil? You have, what does it mean that God would harden someone's heart? Okay, what does that look like? What does it mean that God would, it says God hardened his heart, so I concede it, it's there in the text, but you have to, what does it mean that God would harden someone's heart? <clears throat> Two things, is it active or is it passive? Okay, I'll define these two terms here. Did God actively harden Pharaoh's heart or, or anyone else's heart for that matter, or did God passively harden Pharaoh's heart? Okay, to actively harden means that God directly intervened in Pharaoh's heart to create fresh evil, thus guaranteeing the outcome that God wanted to accomplish. So God intervened in Pharaoh's heart actively placed evil in an otherwise clean heart. That's, that's called active hardening. God took a pretty upstanding guy who didn't have any evil there before, and God created fresh evil, used Pharaoh, so Pharaoh would do what God wanted him to do. Passive hardening, God took the restraints off. That's what that means. There was already evil in Pharaoh's heart, and God allowed him to do the evil that was already present. Basically, God removed his hand from Pharaoh. Okay, now as we seek to understand, was it active or was it passive? Here's a good question for you. Are you as evil as you could be? Like, do you sin as much as you possibly could sin? Okay, I know people don't like being called sinners and evil, but Compared to a holy God, we're all evil. We're all sinners. So the question is, are you sinning as much as you could? I think most of us would agree, well, if I think about it for a minute, no, I'm not. So why? Why aren't you sinning? Like what's holding you back from being as sinful as you possibly could be? Who's stopping you from doing that? Now, I know we would like to think, well, it's me. I'm stopping myself. I'm a good person. I'm trying to do good things. I'm trying to keep my life in order. 
Is it really you who's stopping you from doing all of the evil that you possibly could? I know we look at dictators and what we would call as evil people who've done evil things, guys like you know, Mussolini or guys like Hitler or guys like Osama bin Laden or pick your name. And we say those guys are pure evil. Well, I'll tell you what, they're not as evil as they could be. They've done some horrific things to humanity. Each of them, and there's a long list. Ted Bundy, Charles Manson, you, you populate the list. They're not as evil as they could be. So the question is, what stops them from, from doing the evil, from doing even more evil? What stops us? Now, I'm trying to answer the question for you, is God's hardening of a heart active or passive? I say that God's hardening of a heart is passive. And I come to that conclusion because I realize that I am not doing as much sin or as much evil as I possibly could because God is holding me back. Because of God's grace and because of God's mercy in my life, I'm not doing as much sin as I possibly could. Now, the point here is Pharaoh already had evil within his heart. And what God did with Pharaoh is he basically took the leash off. He basically took his holy and righteous, merciful and gracious hand and said, Pharaoh, I'm just going to let you do what is already in your heart to do. That is called a passive hardening of someone's heart when God just takes his gracious and merciful hand off a person. The only reason that I don't sin more than I already do is because God's gracious and merciful hand is still on me. I don't want you to have this picture that God looked around Egypt and was like, well, there's a good-looking kid. He's got the gift of administration, and he's got the gift of leadership. It makes sense to put him. I will lift him up. He's a nice guy. He, you know, he hasn't done anything evil, but I need to use him, so I'm going to put a bunch of evil and harden this guy's heart so that he will accomplish my, my purpose. That's not at all what had happened. God literally removed his hand from Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh did the evil that was already there. Now, as I have been wrestling with this, a really practical implication of Pharaoh, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, uh, is very simply this. If you, if I continue and am persistent in sinning, persistent in just going my own way and doing my own thing, there comes a point in time where God lets the leash off, where God lets the restraints off, where the merciful and gracious hand of God is removed. And the message is, you have this sin in your heart. I will let you go to do what is already planted in your heart. And that is a hardening of our hearts. Not because God stirred fresh evil in you, but because there was so much sin already there, you were bent on doing it. Now, what I love about the story of Pharaoh in Exodus, uh, how many times did Pharaoh, how many opportunities was he given to repent? Ten, if not more, but at least ten. Ten opportunities God moved in a powerful, unique way. And every time God uh, gave Pharaoh an opportunity to repent, Pharaoh hardened his heart even more. God just let the restraints go off even more. You and I are given the opportunity by God to repent. And I would ask you, if you're sitting here today and you're starting to think and you're starting to realize, you know what? You're describing me. 
you're describing how my heart is. It's just actually getting harder towards God. I'm just kind of going through the motions of this thing called Christianity. But I know in my heart of hearts that I'm just doing my own thing. I'm going my own way. I will warn you and tell you if you continue down that path, God will let you go your own way and you will live in the consequences of that decision. But God does not desire that. God desires you to repent. He gave Pharaoh numerous opportunities to repent as he gives you and I numerous opportunities to repent. And the way we repent is we stop walking in disobedience and we choose obedience. So you might be doing things right now, this very day, in the season of your life that you know is just disobedient to God. The more you walk in the path of disobedience, the harder your heart gets towards God. The only way to remedy a hardened heart is through obedience. Pharaoh's heart refused to repent, therefore his heart got even harder as he went. Third question that this text brings is, how can God hold someone accountable for having a hardened heart that was hardened by God? Why does he still blame us if there's nothing we can do to resist him? Romans 9.19 says, One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? Kind of what's behind that question right there is simply, if God shows mercy where he wills and hardens where he wills, then how can anyone possibly be blamed uh, for what he does? If God's hardened him, if God's moved him, how is it that guy's fault? It's, a, it's an honest question. It's a genuine question. And what I love about this question is Paul's response. Now, some of you might be wondering, well, that's a great question. Who is God to judge us or blame us for something that he ultimately did in our hearts? And I love Paul's response in Romans 9.20. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Paul's response to that question is no answer. Why? Because it's not, it's an illegitimate question. Now, I know some of you maybe have kind of just grown up with the mindset that all questions are fair game, that God's not afraid of our questions, God can handle our questions, he's a big God, so bring our questions on. I would agree for the most part there's truth that God is not afraid of our questions, but what is happening here and what Paul is responding to is that is a prideful and arrogant thing to look in the face of God and say, who are you to do this? It is the created calling the creator to give an account for his actions. That is the epitome of pride. It's calling God to, you must justify yourself to me. It is nonsense to think that God has to justify his decisions or his actions or his plans or his purposes to me. Why? Because I'm not him. He created me. The pride of humanity says, God, you must clear everything by me before you do it. And especially when you're doing something I disagree with or don't like, you better justify what you're doing. And Paul's response to them, uh, to those who have that pride of heart, is simply this. Who are you to talk back to God? And I want you to hear the weight of that question. It's not just this rhetorical question of, hey, that's something for you to consider, something for you maybe to think about as you go home today. 
No, this is with some force and with some boldness of who are you to even look in the face of the creator and throw an accusation his way that he's doing something that you disagree with. Now, Paul is not saying that there is no answer to this question, but what he is saying is that man is not in a position to question God like that. I ask God lots of questions. If you know me at all, I ask lots of questions in general. God desires us to ask questions, but our questions must be founded in humility. And God, I'm asking this in the most humble way because I want to grow in my knowledge of you so that I can worship you, so that I can love you, so that I can walk with you, that I can relate with you. God, I come to you with my questions, not seeking to disprove you, and I don't come with a sense of pride and arrogance. I come with the most utter sense of humility. I don't know and I want to know so that I can worship you, so that I can honor you and how I live, how I walk with you, walk with myself, and walk with the world around me. But if there is any level or hint of just pride in the questions that we have with God, our response is a silence for him because, as Paul says, who are we to talk back to our creator? I think one of the tough things about all these things I'm even talking about today is you and I have to come to a point in our lives where we realize that we're not going to understand everything and actually be okay with that. A verse some of you might be very familiar with says uh, this in Isaiah 55. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is, does not mean that we can't come to God and seek God, seeking to understand him, but there comes a point where a finite being cannot look in the face of a finite, infinite God and have absolute knowledge, have absolute understanding. So your question, my question then, in the things that I don't understand, can I still trust God? Can I submit that I don't have all of the answers about evil? I don't have all of the answers about election and predestination and any other theological questions you might have. But can I trust that God is working to accomplish good in my life, that he would be glorified. Most of us have a hard time submitting. We take our lack of knowledge, our lack of answers, and rather than being humbled by that and trusting God with that, we shake our fist in the face of a creator and say, because I don't understand these things and you refuse to reveal or justify yourself to me, I go and do my own thing. Another example of a hardened heart. So please, if you're here today and you're hearing these things, please ask God the questions that you have. But check your heart, your spirit at the door, that your questions are coming to him in humility. Now, if you believe that God is just basically some sick, twisted, demented, out-of-control deity, you're going to have a very difficult time submitting to God and the things you just don't know. But the God that has revealed himself to us most clearly in his son, Jesus Christ, I can submit to to him. He sent his son in love to rescue, redeem, and reconcile me. I can submit to him in the things that I do not understand. Now, Paul doesn't abandon this question altogether, but he brings out a metaphor. And he says this in Romans 9, 20 through 24, or 21 through 24. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience 
the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. You have to see, he's coming now at the people with questions. Let me ask you now some questions. Verse 23, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he has also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Now, at the heart of these verses, and obviously a lot can be said about that, is I think a very simple question. Does God have the right to be God? Can God be God? It might seem like a silly question to ask, but this is essentially the argument that Paul is making. Does not the potter have the right because he's the creator? He's the potter. Does he not have the right to make out of some objects, some for noble purposes, some for common purposes? Does God have the right to be God? Now, I know we don't walk around and shake our fist and verbalize, you don't have the right to be God, you're fired. But by the way that we live our life in either disobedience or a continued hardness of heart, our lives answer that question of, I'm not sure by the way I'm living my life that I'm actually submitting to the fact that God is God and I'm not. God has the right or the authority to make out of the same lump of clay, some for noble and some for common use. It's the potter's responsibility to shape the clay, just like it is God's responsibility to shape you, to shape me. However God wants to shape you, it's his decision, not yours. If God wants to shape one this way and shape another this way, guess what? He's God. He can do that. Now, the question, is it right for God to, or the fourth question I'm, I'm asking is, if God knew that humanity would sin, then why did he create those he knew he would not save? Did he create in order to destroy? Okay, what's coming, where that question is stemming from is, if God knew that there would be people who would reject him, and he knew in advance that not everyone would receive mercy, why on earth did he create that person? Do you understand that question? This is really important. If God knew that he would not save person A, but he was going to save person B, he knew in advance who was getting mercy, why would he create person A? If he knew that person A's path was headed towards destruction, did God just create somebody in order to destroy them? Did he create someone, did he create a sinner in order so that he could destroy that sinner and punish them? Now, Again, I'll ask this question in a different way. Is it right for God to create sinners simply in order to punish them? Did God just need a fresh batch of clay to destroy, hence he did just not stop the fall? Now, the answer to this question is God created people, okay? God created people. He didn't create sinners. He created Adam and Eve in his image. They were without sin. So God created humanity, and humanity chose to sin. Thus, God deals with us as we are, sinners who have rebelled against God. So to throw the accusation that it's just wrong for God to create someone as a sinner and then just destroy them, it's an inaccurate accusation. 
because God created humanity perfect in his image, humanity chose to sin. And now God deals with us as sinners. Now, Paul does not suggest that some pots are created only to be destroyed. Okay, so it's not like God is up in heaven and be like, oh, person A, I cannot wait to destroy them. I just, I'm, I'm enjoying their destruction. Okay, Paul makes clear that pots are created, makes clear that some pots are not created to be destroyed. He makes clear that pots have different roles. Okay, this is not a question about salvation here. This is a question about roles. Some God created for this purpose. Some God created for that purpose. The point is, it's God's right to create however God wants to create. Uh, A favorite author of mine, R.C. Sproul, said it like this. God does not choose to create people in a fallen condition so that he can condemn them to eternal damnation. It's not God's purpose to force people to sin and then punish them for that sin. So yes, God created everyone, but he created everyone in his image, and the first two people, Adam and Eve, decided to rebel against God, and their one decision has impacted all of us. So God treats us as sinners who sin. Did God ordain the fall of humanity? Meaning, did God know that humanity would choose sin? The answer is absolutely yes. God absolutely knew that we would choose to rebel against him. So then the question becomes, then why did he not stop humanity from sinning? It's amazing to me that we ask questions like this and wonder things like this, but then in the same breath, we're like, I want free will. I want God to make sure that I don't do something, but then when God does that, I'm like, oh no, that's messing with my free will. We are a paradox at best. We don't make sense. To demonstrate, so the question then, why did he not stop humanity from sinning? And Paul's argument is, to demonstrate the riches of his glory, meaning he would see, we would see just how merciful and loving God is. God did not stop the fall because he wanted the fallen just to see how much he loves you. He wanted you to see, he wanted me to see just how merciful he was. God clearly, he could have stopped the fall. He could have forced people to be obedient. But if he would have stopped the fall, and if he forces you to be obedient, would there ever be a point in time where you'd say, God's grace is so good. God's mercy is so rich. God's love is so complete. God allows the fall as a demonstration to us of just how much he loves you, of just how far he'll go to redeem you. The fact that he knew in advance that we would fall, that we would rebel, that's going to cost God his only son. And God says, I choose to send my son to redeem you as a demonstration of my great love, my great mercy, and my great grace. God's not only glorified in sending his son to redeem, but he's glorified when the created understand that. Do you understand that when you, when you get just how much God loves you, that brings glory to God. When you understand just how gracious the grace of God is, that glorifies God. 
When you walk around with an attitude of God doesn't love me, woe is me, God's not gracious to me, God's not merciful to me, that dishonors the very thing that God did. And this is the good news, the gospel that Paul was and is proclaiming that's not only for the Jews. This is what was so radical to them is this message that God's mercy is not just for the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles. This is the good news for us. I realize that as we talk about this doctrine of election, it's a very, very challenging doctrine to understand that God made a choice. But one of the things that this doctrine should lead us to is a deep sense of gratitude for who God is and for what God has done. The end of Romans chapter 9, uh, Paul list a few different uh, sections in Scripture from the Old Testament. I would encourage you at some point today to go back and read Romans 9, 25 through 29. But he quotes people like Hosea. He quotes people like Isaiah. And Paul's trying to underscore for them, for us, this, this doctrine of election is not something Paul created on his own. God, from the beginning of time, was making clear that he did call a people to himself, the Jewish nation, I'll read one verse in Romans 9.25. It says, As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. God's making clear that this message, this gospel, this good news that God has provided a way for us to have a relationship is not just for the Jewish people. It's for you, known as the Gentile people. As we uh, just stop for today... I realize I've covered uh, a lot of different verses that are best very challenging. My question to you as we finish is, you're going to either have a response where you'll walk away and be like, if God is like this and a God who just makes a choice, I want nothing to do with that God. I would plead with you not to respond like that. That is just a demonstration of a heart that is getting harder towards God, who he is, and how, he, how he's done things. In me, the doctrine of election, the more I've read it over years and years of sitting with this and trying to understand it, it's producing actually in me not more frustration, not more contempt, but more gratitude. And I only am getting more gratitude because I'm starting to realize as I get older how sinful I am, how, how good the mercy of God is in my life. And the fact that God would even open up my mind and my heart to understand him is phenomenal. It produces in me just deep gratitude. And if you're a Christian, I would just plead with you to sit as we worship and celebrate communion. Let your heart just be filled with the gratitude that God's grace is real, that God's love is all-encompassing, that his mercy is enough. And that's not because of what you've done. It's God's called you. He's chosen you. He softened your heart towards him. Favorite verse in uh, 2 Corinthians says this, As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Like what Paul is saying there is respond to what God's doing because it's today. If God is softening your heart right now, respond to him now in this place.
If you've never responded to the grace of God, never received the love of God, never understood the mercy of God, it all comes through his son, Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, if your heart is aching and in this place today where you're like, I want to receive, I want to respond, do it today. Do it now. And you do that literally by just saying, Jesus, I receive what you have done for me. I confess that you are God. I'm a sinner who needs saving. You're my Savior. And if you're a Christian, I pray that by God's grace, your heart would just be filled with gratitude of his grace and mercy and his love.